everybody. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I am Erin Hesse, and I'm on staff here. I am with Pastor Nick Gibson. Hi. And we are going to be covering some of the questions that came in from our AMA question time during the services. Just for asking me anything. Yes, thank you. And we only have three of them, but then we didn't want to leave all of you with just a 10-minute podcast because that would be ridiculous. We thought that we could take a little bit diver, uh, a deeper dive into some of the underlying foundation of why we're talking about what we're talking about in the series and specifically from this last sermon where the um, where holy love doesn't brand um, came from. So we'll first dive into these few questions and then um, get to some of those bigger topics. So first, Nick, can you speak to how the posters that are hanging up in the sanctuary came to be? Sure. So as we were putting a, the um, the series together for Unbrandable, we were talking about just how, like, we wanted to do a series that was said, like, what kind of church is High Point Church? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and many of our listeners know, that I find churches that promote themselves by how they're different from other churches and better than other churches to be kind of anathema. I will not mm-hmm. promote our church or design our church's communications that way. But we did did want to convey to people what kind of church our church is in the sense of like like what does it mean? What is the culture of? What are the beliefs of High Point Church? Um, at least relative to the culture we exist in, mm-hmm. and what what are our what are our distinctives? And one of them is is like we're not slick, and we're not we don't mm-hmm. brand we don't try to brand God because inevitably when you try to do that, you try to make it like a little shtick that people can just remember and like. Mm-hmm. It you end up telling like half the story. You end up with, with people with all these half truths in their mind. And the problem with half-truths is that they, people don't have any truths mm. that are really true, that yeah. stand up to life. And wh- what ends up happening is this, that's, that's demonic and it's a psychological heyday for unbelief mm-hmm. because all these little branded aphorisms, these little sayings that like you'd think must be right, they just end up breaking down mm-hmm. when people ha- have difficulties. And so one of the things that we believe is fundamental about High Point Church is that we, we don't think God is brandable. Mm-hmm. Just don't think that. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't make a logo for your church, but just you can't, every little saying is probably wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I believe very much that like um, clarity is, We I believe we live in a foggy time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the judge Oliver Wendell Holmes that said, I wouldn't give two figs for simplicity on the near side of complexity, but I would give my right arm for simplicity mm-hmm. on the far side of complexity. Mm-hmm. And so what I've tried to do as a pastor in these times is to completely reject simplicity on the near side of, er, of complexity mm-hmm. and say, look, I'm not going to sim- make God simplistic for you yeah. just so that you can believe in him because you don't want to be mentally or emotionally rigorous at all. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be mentally rigorous and you don't want to emotionally heal. Yeah. So I'm just going to make God a simplistic little trinket that you can put on your life so that you can feel good about the fact that you're going to die. Yeah. Right. That that's just is totally unhelpful. Yeah. And it actually vac- vaccinates people mentally against the idea of God. Mm, yeah. And so, um, but uh, but also you can't have an infinitely complex understanding of God because you just can't carry around that in your mind and heart. Right. So what we want we, it is good. I mean, the Bible is full of of um, simplifications in that it's full of summaries. Mm-hmm. The Bible has summary statements. Right. And it has like summary lists and summary chapters. And so like Romans 12 is a really good summary chapter. Mm-hmm. Like you could read that like for a year and you'd be like, okay, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Or Romans three is a great example of a summary of salvation, especially mm-hmm. verses 21 to 25. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's, that's what it means that Jesus, yeah. um, is a propitiation for sin yeah. If, if, through faith in Christ that we receive a righteousness from God. So he is just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's mm-hmm. the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. So there are these summaries. And so what I've tried to do in the book substance, in the book blueprint, in numerous series is to say, how do we make belief in God simple without making it simplistic mm-hmm. as simple as it can be, but no simpler. Right. And then what do we, what do we gauge it against? Like, what are we speaking to? And what we're speaking to is not other churches, how mm-hmm. high point church is better than other churches. Cause it's not mm-hmm. in many cases. And even if it is, that's not the point. Yeah. Don't, we're not saying come to our church. We're saying come to our church from the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, worship Jesus who is King rather than, um, the Lord of the kingdom of the air, which is the devil. Right. Like, yeah. like instead of being a slave to sin, become a child of righteousness. Yeah. Right. So we've got, I think there's six posters. Right. So, so the idea here is, is that, oh, sorry, you can corral me. That's fine. Oh, so of these six posters, these are not truths that we have summarized from the Bible. No. They are truths. Ironic or, cliches. Okay, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that Christians actually believe and yes. a lot of non-Christians think Christians believe mm. because a lot of Christians believe them. Mm-hmm. 
and we're trying to, they're caricatures and we're trying to face and destroy these simplistically branded caricatures that many people do believe or think we should believe. Mm -hmm. And we want to just obliterate them. Yeah. Is the idea. Yeah. Great. If this person was asking on a very, um, practical level like mm-hmm. who created them yeah so the creative team so like scott kyle and john sikatowski and nicole are the are our communications well in haley obviously right mm-hmm. are our communications team and um they were like you know i, I gave them a lot a bunch of ideas mm-hmm. i probably gave them three ideas per week and then oh, they sure. picked the ones that they liked for the power one i wanted to have a picture of mike beresford riding a grizzly bear <laughs> off that like meme about of Putin, yeah. but they decided that might be inappropriate. <laughs> I'm sure they'll tuck that away for a future yeah. series. Okay, great. Uh, second question. If, oh, and this, so that first question came from two weeks ago from September 19th, that sermon, um, someone watching that sermon. These next two questions are from your most recent sermon on the 26th. On holy so, love. On holy love. Yes. So if the Greeks had four words for love, there would have been some cultural and societal meaning for agape. Can you expound on the difference between the cultural interpretations of agape versus what Paul was trying to convey to the church? Yeah. So, um, okay. Sorry to give a Greek lesson here. Uh, there are essentially two kinds of Greek that are studied broadly by scholars. One is called Attic Greek, which is the Greek of philosophers. Like if you study Socrates or Plato, that's written in Attic Greek. And if you read the New Testament and documents like the New Testament, it's written what's referred to as Koine Greek, which is essentially common or newspaper sort of Greek. Mm-hmm. Lower reading level, not as many vocabulary words. The syntax isn't as complicated. Now, you would think that it would be much easier to study Koine Greek because it's a simpler language, but it's actually the opposite. Hmm. Because Attic Greek, because it has more words, more clear and decisive syntax, oh, it's clearer. Sure. And so it's easier to know exactly what people are saying. You're reading philosophers. Mm-hmm. And in those days, philosophy wasn't about writing the most academic, obscure thing you could possibly write. But but philosophy is the philosophos, philo, phileo, mm. the love of sophos, wisdom. Mm. And so the idea was, is you would write these discourses or whatever that pursued wisdom. And they weren't really that obscure usually, right? Sure. And so it's one of the reasons why people still read Socrates and Plato, or well, Plato, there is no Socrates, but Plato wrote about Socrates, right? Sure. They read these dialogues today because they are so direct and clear, right? Mm-hmm. And about wisdom, not just obscurity. Mm-hmm. So it, actually, when you read the New Testament, there's all kinds of more opportunities for ambiguity because the language isn't as precise. Right. And when it comes to the words for love in the New Testament, the main words used for love in the, in the New Testament are phileo and agapao. Okay. And the, and agapao was used broadly and both of those words were used generically for love, not just specifically in the way they're used in Attic Greek. Mm. So when Lewis wrote the four loves on those four words that I mentioned, um, he's a classic scholar. So the Greek he learned and studied was, was Attic Greek. Mm-hmm. And so in Attic Greek, there were these four words because people wanted to distinguish between them, right? And so mm-hmm. Aristotle writing eth- his ethics, for example, would distinguish the different kinds of loves, which I think is very helpful. Mm-hmm. But in the New Testament, the word love is used much more generically. And you have to tell exactly what it means by its context. So for sure. example, there's a place in John's gospel where it says the father loves the son. And the word phileo is used. Mm. The father loves the son. And then two chapters later, um, the word, the same is the exact same thing. The father loves the son and the word agapao is used. Hmm. And there's just, and there's no difference in the meaning of the verses. Yeah. They mean the same thing. Yeah. So phileo and agapao could be used interchangeably and often word. Also agapao could mean love that would not be sacrificial and charitable. For example, mm. in the narrative um, books about the kings, when they were translated into the, the, um, the Septuagint, which is, which if you sometimes you'll see LXX, that's the Septuagint. Okay, that's Roman okay. numerals for yeah. the 70, right? L is 50, XX is 60, sure. 70. So LXX is the 70, the Septuagint. It, it, it comes from a legend that 70 scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek and every word was mm. the same and they didn't consult each other, which is almost certainly false. <laughs> yeah. But the, the Septuagint is the best Greek translation of the Old Testament that we have. One of the okay. fun things about yeah. the Septuagint is the word for young woman in Hebrew was translated virgin, hmm. where it says the virgin will be with child. Yeah. And people are like, oh, it means young woman. Well, the, the Greek translation says virgin because that's what the text meant. And that was 200 years before Jesus was born. Hmm. So nobody could argue that was switched right. because Mary was a virgin. Right? right. So there's some fun things like that. But for the most part, it helps us interpret Koine Greek. And mm-hmm. one of the uses of Agapao in the narrative books is um, Amnon loving his sister Tamar, who he later raped and then hated oh. and yeah. destroyed her life. Yeah. So um, it, I wouldn't refer to that as like Christian charitable, self-giving. Yeah love yeah. right yeah so in that sense when we talk about so that's when I, I so i don't say agape love means this the apostle paul 
began to use the word agapao, especially in 1 Corinthians and in other places, to try to structure what he means by love in a Christian context. Because mm. he, like, you know, in Corinth, they, they had men going to prostitutes and stuff like that, right? So, like, he was trying to define love as well. Like, yeah. what does love mean? And he certainly didn't use the word eros mm, when he right. was doing that, right? So, in that sense, agapao, or the word, or agape love, as we sometimes refer to it, is love. It is the Greek word for love. Mm-hmm. And it is a word that the Apostle Paul attempts to use to show the nature of what holy love looks like in Christian practice. Okay. In the King James Bible, it was translated charity. Mm. That is love that doesn't care about what you get out of something, yeah. but really just cares about the good of the other. Yeah. And so I think that's a pretty good chan- translation, actually. Mm-hmm. Actually, But the word charity, as it was used in 1611, which is when the King James Bible was translated, doesn't really hold up exactly the same for today. And so it's often just translated love. Sure. But now it's subject to Koine English, right? The, mm-hmm. the like newspaper, like generic English, which is very ambiguous. Yeah. We use the word love for, for way more broadly and way more imprecisely. So it's it really stinks. So yeah. I do think when Christians say uh, like agape love, like that really does mean something. Mm-hmm. Even though like you might, it might not hold up linguistically if you were like, well, does the word sure. agapao always mean that? And the right. answer is of course not. <laughs> yeah. But it does mean that the apostle Paul, at least in First Corinthians 13, seems to be using it to mean that. And sure. in other places in his writings, he seems to be doing that as well. Yeah. Even though that doesn't seem to bear out in like John's gospel, for example. Yeah. Great. So that, that's why Christians should not like use software that says, oh, look at the Greek word behind this. Mm. And then they go, oh, in John 5, it's agapao, which means God loves the son self-givingly and blah, 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 because it's agapao. I'm sorry, you have to study Greek for two years to know mm. what you can and can't do <laughs> yeah. with syntax and words and their and their semantical ranges and meanings. Yeah. So don't do that. Sure. Um, but what I've said about agapao is kind of the deal. So, yeah, the so crux agape it, yeah. love is a real thing. It is a it is a specific kind of love, yeah. the self-giving love of Christ. And in the scriptures, it is a supernatural and holy love. And it is different than what we see being called love in the world. Mm. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yep. Great. Seems like a good place to stop. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question from the AMA submissions. Um, you have referenced teaching your kids catechism. Is there a specific version or edition that is better than another? And before you answer that, can you quickly, briefly d- define catechism? Yeah. A catechism is a usually a series of doctrinal statements that people can memorize so as to know the wider structure of Christian doctrine. Okay. Great. So um, for you yeah. personally and specifically with your kids... Yeah, so the Luther, the Lutheran Shorter Catechism is ordered around the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and something else that I can't remember right now. Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, and I don't know. But like, it, it, like it, it's summarized around these like scriptural summaries. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, um, a catechism can be really small. In some ways, the Apostles' Creed is a catechism. Yeah. That's it's just a super thinking. short one. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. So, yeah, so uh, for us, we, of course, memorize the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. Um, we did use the New City Catechism for a while, which is like three bucks, you know, if you get it online or something. And it's uh, Tim and Kathy Keller's. Hmm. And it, it's yeah. basically a, a super shortened version of the Westminster Catechism. Oh, sure. So, but it's like, it's very easy to read with kids. It's very easy to memorize. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we did our, with our kids, though, is we did we did Bible verse memorization, hmm. and that's a that's like a kind of catechism. It's just less systematic. Yep. Generally speaking, evangelical Christians will do Bible verse memorization with children, and it's usually just like a spattering of verses throughout mm-hmm. the Bible, which is much more unsystematic than catechisms, right? You know, um, because because if you go back even a few hundred years, the focus of Christian education was on understanding the Christian faith. It wasn't knowing the Bible. Mm-hmm. Which is probably more correct than what we do. Mm-hmm. As people became more educated and it seemed to be reasonable to expect them to study, read, and understand the Bible, that became the emphasis in evangelical life yeah. much more. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in other ways, expositional preaching is supposed to be a form of catechism. Because mm-hmm. if I preach a passage of the Bible faithfully, the assumption is, is that if you hear the sermon and you pay attention to it, you will forever remember what I say, generally speaking, the structure of it, when you read that passage. 
Hmm. Like your memory of what that passage means will be permanently connected to the passage itself in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So that each expositional sermon I give, I'm catechizing the congregation relative to these passages in the scripture. Yeah. And in one sense, that's dangerous because basically you'll remember the Bible with my commentary. Mm -hmm. But that's why the expositional preacher has to be so focused on being faithful and saying what's actually there. Right. Because once you do that, then 20 years later, a kid can read a passage of the Bible Mm -hmm. and they know what it means. Because their memory will call up what they'd heard about mm-hmm. it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's why that's why having good preaching is so important and yeah. why the lack of it is so detrimental. Yeah. All right. Well, at this point, we're going to transition to... Wait, can I make one more oh, comment? yes. There's just so many... Like, if you, like, just look on the internet for, like catechism help right now mm-hmm. there's so many like artsy fartsy intelligent <laughs> like classics kind of people yeah putting out catechism helps so if you have any desire to do that it's not hard to find help yeah we can probably link at like the apostles creed and the new city catechism in the podcast notes yeah as well. lutheran, and, the lutheran, lutheran shorter catechism is a good place to start as well mm-hmm. um yeah great All right, so we are going to take an even deeper dive into some of what built the foundation for your sermon from not just this last Sunday, but for the whole series um, and why you thought it was important for us to be talking about what we're talking about, contextualizing for the culture that we're in now. Um, So, for example, one of the small group discussion questions from or discussion points from this past week was to talk about the poster and what was written. on there, the because you're already perfect, yeah. um, and that this we we like to look at ourselves and we, we want to be praised. We want to get be affirmed by other people. We don't want to be confronted or challenged. And you have shared with me that the overarching terms and belief systems of that kind of thinking comes from a combination of of two um, intuitive belief systems. Which you should explain that a little bit after I. Okay. Share them. So um, the moralistic, therapeutic deism and expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to dive into those a little bit more yeah. because it's likely that we are all, or we are living in a culture that has grabbed onto those systems, but we don't necessarily know that that's what these systems are or what, yeah. and, and see them happening. So yeah, yeah, both of these nomenclatures, moralistic, therapeutic deism, henceforth referred to as MTD, Yes, that, right? thank you. Yeah, And then secondly, expressive individualism. These are not f- religions or philosophies. These are religions and philosophies that were discovered by sociologists when they studied human beings. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like, hey, I wrote this philosophy. Why don't you believe it with me? It's sure. let's interview 1,200 or 13,000 young people and find out what they really believe. Mm-hmm. When Christian Smith and some others, when I think this is when he was at the University of North Carolina, North Carolina Chapel Hill, um, they they were like, let's find out what the religion of American young people really is. Mm-hmm. Not what they say it is or what the doctrine of their churches is, but like when you talk to them, what is their religious worldview? Yeah. And what they published was this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism, mm-hmm. a creed that has basically five doctrinal points. Should I go into those? Yeah. Now? Okay. Yes. So th- what they said, the the fundamental five doctrinal points are, one is that God exists, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over all human life on earth. That is, that God is, is scientifically provident in creation, mm-hmm. but he's not functionally provident in human affairs, right? Mm-hmm. The second thing is, is that God wants us to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Mm-hmm. So what, what we're supposed to do in our life is be good, nice, and fair to each other, mm-hmm. right? Okay. The third thing is, is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The fourth is God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Mm-hmm. So God is, God is looked to when you need a divine problem solver. Mm-hmm. And basically, he is not expected to be around or be relevant the rest of your life. Yeah. Other than the general expectation that you be good, nice, and fair. Right. Okay. Yep. And then fourthly, um, good people go to heaven when they Fifth, die. Yes. Fifth. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Good people go to heaven when they die. Yep. So, so that's the idea that, that God. So, do you see how you see how this is deistic? Deism is the idea that God like created the world, set it in motion, then stepped back and did nothing else. Mm-hmm. So God is creator, but He is not provident. Right. He does not govern the universe relative to His own will. Yeah. Down to its minutia or down to its specifics or details. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So it's a non-provident God who exists, who has a will that he doesn't enforce mm-hmm. other than just to say we should be good, nice and fair with each other. And that, but 
the here the, the ironic hypocrisy is is that if you if you're in a pinch mm-hmm. he is still responsible to come and help you out of it yeah i don't know if you wrote this quote <laughs> or if the, if you if this was from somewhere else but um like a synopsis of all of that would be far from seeing him as our master the postmodern age makes jesus our mascot the one who affirms our our favored causes and affirms us in our deepest selves where we find ourselves defined by our our severest desires yeah yeah, I think that's Michael Horton. Okay, but yeah, Jesus <laughs> as mascot rather than master. Like, so Jesus was this like really great, fair, nice, yeah. sweet person, and he told us all to be nice, sweet people, treat other people like you'd want to be treated, mm-hmm. right? That's fair, which is fair, nice, and good, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And there, therefore, religion, organized religions of any kind, just just get way too specific, mm-hmm. and they're way too controlling, and they're way too. They think they know all this about it, but they don't, right? Yeah. So, so it's it's a non particular religion. Yeah. It's, and, and this is the kind of religion human beings always make up for themselves. It is general enough that mm-hmm. it provides for your salvation mm-hmm. and yet vague enough that it demands nothing of you mm-hmm. except for the minimum you wish to demand from others. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. And it's, it's exactly what everybody wants from God, right? It's like yep. God's there. There's going to be an afterlife. Nice people are going to get in. I'm, of course, a nice person, mm-hmm. right? I talked to this guy one time. He was a lay pastor at a church in New York State, real small brethren church that I just visited one time when I was there visiting my family. And he, he told me, in, like in, in conver- I think it was in conversation after church, he said, yeah, I've been doing prison ministry for 27 years. Mm-hmm. I've met with hundreds, if not thousands of inmates. He said, I have not yet met anybody who didn't believe their good, ways, good deeds outweighed their bad. Hmm. It's just fu- a fundamental to, and so that's where yeah. moralistic comes from. So it's yep. it's de- it's a deism yes. that's moralistic, meaning as long as I'm a good, nice person, I'm yeah. going to go to heaven. Yep. And what you should be towards me is a good, nice person. Mm-hmm. We should all be good, nice people to each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is pretty, which is perfectly vague, right? Right. You can still have sex with whoever you want. You can still do a, a job you want. You like right. Everything is open to it as long as you're just nice right. and fair to others. Well, and that's where the therapeutic part comes in. Like it's... What makes me feel good? Right. Yeah. It leaves it leaves a therapeutic lifestyle open to you. Yes. You yes. can you can live a, a lifestyle that's about you because the most important thing is life. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Yeah. And if something precludes that, that's the time when God is supposed to act. Mm-hmm. If your life, if you're not being happy and feeling good about yourself, then in that situation, God is responsible to act to mm-hmm. help you. Yeah. And if He doesn't, then that's that reflects badly on him. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic because otherwise it's deistic. So it's like, God, stay the mm-hmm. heck out of everything unless I need something, which is a very insulting way to treat a divine being. Yeah. And yet it, and yet when you, but remember they didn't say to these young people, are, is this what you believe? Mm-hmm. They listened to them and asked them what they believed. And then right. they collated what all these thousands of young people said. And it was yeah. these things. This no, almost nobody would construct a religion and say, this is what I believe. Right. You like intuitively kind of slide into it yeah. because you're, you're kind of being cooked in the culture of it. Mm-hmm. Right. There's one thing I, I want to say about this though, that I think is really important yeah. that Michael Horton points out. And he said in the research on this, we, what, see what you, what some of us might think is this is they're like, listen, you know, Christian Smith, give us a break because we live in this like therapeutic culture mm-hmm. in this like moralistic culture and whatever where that's what our kids are being taught at school by like secular people. And what Horton said was, yeah, except when Smith and his colleagues did this research, they found that in many cases, the more a child went to church or youth group, the more they believed mm. in moralistic therapeutic deism. That's and so scary. he's like, he said, we, the church, not just the culture are doing this to ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And that's the scary thing mm-hmm. is like, that's probably true. Yeah. So I have a clarifying question because it's likely that there are people who are listening to this podcast who have attended explore mm-hmm. and at explore you talk about there's like two general camps that people will fall into if they're not careful either um, believing a moralistic gospel or believing a therapeutic gospel and so like when i read a moralistic therapeutic deism i was like, like oh shoot they've yeah. done both <laughs> yeah like what do yeah how do i make this fit does mm-hmm. is mtd somehow a meshing of these two beliefs or is this yeah. separate from what you've talked about and how you you have used these terms and explore no it's funny um c.s lewis said this in in one in a couple of his books i think in the space trilogy a couple of different times where he, he said uh, human beings when we relate to sin out of out of selfishness essentially we will not just sin one way or the other. We will find a way to do them all. Mm. <laughs> and so he, in, in uh, the last of the space trilogy, he, he talks about how 
in the nice, which is like this government organization that's mm. the villain basically in the story. Yeah. They are extremely secularized. And in that extreme secularity are producing a kind of super superstition based religious entity. Mm-hmm. He, he said that there'll be a time where we'll become so secular in how we've disjoined religious faith from scientific truth that we will have this basically this hollowed out science and then superstition will come back in. Mm. And you can actually see this. If you go on a like, campus, you'll have people worshiping Gaia who believe in like who believe fully in chemistry. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, they'll just be like, yeah, the mother goddess is going to blah, blah. And you're like, how did you come to exist? Mm -hmm. Like, shouldn't you be an atheist or something? Or, you know what I mean? And they're not because nobody wants to live in a, in a room that has windows, but not skylights. Mm -hmm. Like nobody wants to live in a utterly non-transcendent world. Mm -hmm. And so once you become uh, so utterly scientific, scientistic, where, where all you can talk about is describing what is by scientific means, you hollow out the human experience so much that the human soul reaches for something transcendent and they'll take anything. And the only thing that's really opened is the superstitious at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And so they will, they will create, they will create a new superstitious religion, which is precisely what secularism was trying to undermine. Yeah. And yeah. what happens instead, instead, instead of secular secularity and, and the sacred of religious faith coexisting in a kind of symbiotic relationship, they have made science a be all and end all. And in its idolatry, they've used it to destroy religion, Mm. which actually fills out human knowledge in destroying religion. They then create this huge vacuum that can't be filled by science. Yeah. Nothing relative to value and meaning can be filled by science. Science can't answer those questions. It's it's just not the sort of thing science does. Mm -hmm. And so people go, Oh, science can be everything. Then you find out, no, it can't. Right. Right. It's kind of like the whole like mask mandates and like all this stuff we're going through with COVID people Mm -hmm. are like, Oh, this is science. And you're like, no, this is all values. Mm -hmm. Right. We all agree on the science for the most part. The question is the values should wearing a mask outweigh not wearing a mask yeah. should getting a vaccine outweigh not getting a vaccine that's all values yeah right so so superstition comes up same thing with this like you would think that like devils would be happy mm-hmm. with just creating moralists or just creating like <laughs> licentious sensualists yeah you know they're like it's all about me it's all about how i feel about myself blah, yeah. blah, blah. but the problem is is that if you enter the sensualist realm at some point you have to answer the question of whether or not you're a good and nice person. Mm-hmm. Sure. And how are you going to do that? Yeah. Right. So what you need is you need a vague moralism, mm-hmm. right? So that you can be utterly self-focused, totally focused on like understanding yourself and feeling good about yourself and seeking happiness for yourself mm-hmm. while still believing that as that utterly self-focused and self-centered person, you're also a good person. Yeah. But everybody knows that being a good person has in some sense is determined by our relationships with others, mm-hmm. our social connections. Yeah. Right. Which are, all you focused. So how does this work? Well, yeah. as long as you are nice, kind, and fair, mm-hmm. whatever that means, right? <laughs> right? You can. Uh, you're good. You're a good person. Mm-hmm. And you can be totally self focused. And it is amazing how easily it is to lie to ourselves. Yeah. And just be nice a little bit of the time to people that we like and who are like us. Mm-hmm. And say, oh look, I'm a nice person. Yeah. And social media, of course, and technology has made this exponentially worse because by allowing us to curate who we. Re- re- like interact with Mm -hmm. to the people we already like and agree with and that we find it fairly easy to be nice to right Mm -hmm. jesus said like what good is it if you're nice to the people who like you right like the pagans do that right he literally says like the people who don't believe in god at all Mm -hmm. don't have any trouble being nice to the people who like them right that's a fundamental reality of human beings Mm -hmm. he's like if you can love your enemy maybe you can be a christian you know is the idea yeah so in in moralistic therapeutic theism you don't have to love your enemy Mm -hmm. you just have to be nice good and fair to the people you curate into your people group mm. or who are in your feed. Yeah. And it also gets to the point where as long as you don't think another person is being nice, good and fair, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's kind of your job to kill them. Mm. Yeah. So being, being angry, mean and awful to people who you don't think are being nice, good and fair. Right. Is actually a, like good. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's a new moralism. So this allows for, because, um, Deistic therapeutic moralism um, can't, doesn't have these con- these these paradoxical concepts like mm-hmm. meek, the meek will inherit the earth, mm, yeah, you know, and um, the idea of martyrdom mm-hmm. and so on. Because it doesn't have those fundamental categories, because it's so self focused, you're not going to get a selfless religion out of this, or like a selfless person yeah. out of this. Yeah, and so the idea of revenge just enters right back in mm-hmm. because it's so fundamental sure. to human nature to take revenge, yeah. to kill the other, to attack those who threaten you. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're like hardwired in our anger 
to justify to ourselves rationally why the person who threatens us deserves to die. Mm. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's like in an open field in like 940 AD of, of Native Americans mm-hmm. or whether it's on Twitter. Right. Yep. You know. Okay. So I think so I think we've covered moralistic therapeutic deism pretty well as far as generally yeah. Yeah, what it means and how we see it played out a little bit. You yeah. also want to talk about expressive individualism. Yeah, I want to talk about moralistic therapeutic deism for like two more minutes. Okay, great. Can we do that? <laughs> yes. Here's why I want to do that because there is a way in which people actually think that the way human beings think right now is new, which is mm. laughable. Mm. Um, the heresies that pull us away from God are cyclical. They're not they're not creative. Yeah. And like that should make sense because there's really only so many answers to these fundamental theological questions, mm. right? Um, two of the great heresies of the Christian tradition is what's called Gnosticism, mm. which is the idea of having an internal knowledge that is special, that's private, that nobody else has. Yeah. And that that is what leads you to salvation, that you know something other people don't know, and by acting on that knowledge, you can be saved. Mm. And another is Pelagianism, which is connected with with a particular person, Pelagius. And his belief was is that Jesus didn't die for our sins. Jesus died to be an example to us who are sinners. And that by following Christ's example, we could be like him. And so Pelagius believed in a certain kind of salvation by works. He did believe that God gave us grace, but he believed that God gave us grace in response to our good faith effort Mm -hmm. towards Mm -hmm. him to be a good person. Mm -hmm. So, and then there was a version called semi-Pelagianism, which was like basically God's grace accompanies us doing our good faith best, right? Mm -hmm. And so God helps those, so... God helps those who help themselves. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But that's meant morally, not just like sometimes people say that about the poor. God helps those who help. Mm. Like if you try to earn money, God will help you. Pelagius and semi-Pelagianism meant that morally. Yeah. God helps us. So if like you see a kid who needs help and you help him, then God helps you mm. to do the next good thing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And both of those are heresies. Right. right? <laughs> that um, there is no self-salvation in Christian faith. And there is no um, salvation by self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. And moralistic therapeutic deism essentially puts these two heresies together mm-hmm. and makes it so that you can be, you can pursue self-salvation through the work of self-knowledge. Yeah. So by like focusing on yourself and focusing on being happy and knowing yourself, mm-hmm. that is the work of salvation. Mm-hmm. And so you, you do those works, i.e. Pelagianism to figure out the special knowledge about your internal self so that mm-hmm. you can be happy and saved Gnosticism. And you put those two together and you've just basically just created a hybrid heresy of two ancient heresies. Yeah. And you're like, look at me, I'm this modern, new, interesting person. Yeah. And you're like, no, you're older than Augustine. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize that. You're right. And that the church has dealt with this. People have already believed this many times. Yeah. And you are actually going, you're not going forward into the secular enlightenment. You're going back to paganism, Mm. which is what a lot of the 20th century Anglophiles said would happen. Like Mm. G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers and all these people who were like seeing secularism kind of take shape in Mm. the 19, let's say, 20s through the 1960s. Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, I know what's happening here. This Mm. is a new, this is a new secularism that will lead to a new paganism. Yeah. And that's, I think, exactly what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it, right. And I, I think speaking as someone who doesn't know history very well, it is very enlightening to, to recognize, oh, there are terms for these things. There are, they, this has been talked about for many, many years yeah. before I was, before America existed. Mm-hmm. And yet, and it's coming out in a new iteration. Right. People of different races, different right. cultures, different languages. Yeah. Yeah. And in some cases you can even argue different religions because mm-hmm. they're even, even like, non-christian i believe false religions that have tons of true insights in them Mm. and there were people like like buddhism is like looking at what people were doing and they're like that's not right Mm. that's just self-serving yeah right and so like bs has been called on these things in like all kinds of different cultures Mm -hmm. Uh, the christian answer is the only complete one i think and saving one right because it's built around a saving event not just a saving philosophy Mm. yeah right even if buddhism had the saving philosophy in it which i don't think it does but it's you know, it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the saving event yeah. where um, the God man dies for the sins of the sinners so as to forgive them and set them right with themselves mm-hmm. and others in creation Yeah, so that they can be self-sacrificial. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I want to read one more thing that kind of explains the philosophy of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
Um, so th- one of the f- chief statements in the Westminster Catechism of like, wh- what is the sole purpose of man mm. is this, to know God and enjoy him forever. The sole duty of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. Translated into moral therapeutic deism, it's the chief purpose of man is to know ourselves and enjoy ourselves forever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> All right. So um, the other more intuitive belief system that people have grabbed hold of is expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. Can you define that for us? Yeah. So ultimately what happens is, so expressive individualism is the overarching philosophy of American life. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. It is what we all believe. Um, even Christians who are striving not to believe it mm-hmm. are believing it. Yeah. Like between 15 and 75% of what we believe. Mm-hmm. And so don't think you're free of this. And because you just, you're like, we all live in this. It's like a jello we all live in. Mm-hmm. And it stink is on us. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's and, been true for the last 200 years, would you say? Um, and has maybe uh, grown more potent or? Um, there have been a couple others that have tried to try to trace this in American life. And I would say, no, that's not true. However, it's been true in many circles for longer than we think. There's okay. a certain kind of American romanticism that does have a number of these components. And America has always been individualist. Mm-hmm. That is, it believed in the glory of the freedom and self-definition of the individual. Yeah. Now, in most of American life, that was a constructive idea. Because the idea right. was, like in Europe, you were always part of a class. Mm-hmm. And you could never break out of that class. And you could never go up or down from that class. Like you were stuck in that class. Yeah. And so people came to America to get out of that system. To get out of religious repression where you were told what you had to believe to get out of class repression that told you what you could be and what you never could be. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when they came to America, they said, screw all that. We're not going to have that here. Right. Right. We're going to be individuals. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we're going to eke out whatever we can and and merit is going to determine what we're going to be. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously there's caveats to that. Obviously there are parts of America that had slaves. Right. Right. And so on. So, so it wasn't, it wasn't pure, but it was substantially evident Mm -hmm. that that was the case. Right. And slavery greatly undermined that in the South. Mm-hmm. That reality, the antebellum America had a different kind of mythology and it was in many ways less individualistic for that reason. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, because, and, and the more we were a land of immigrants, the more this kind of got fostered that people had a chance to be what they wanted to be. They left yeah. where they were because they were stuck where they were, mm-hmm. right? Even today when you have Mexican immigrants crossing the border, Latin American immigrants, the reason they're coming, it's not like they were like, let's break the laws of America today, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, like I can say, look, maybe immigration should be limited to this or that, but, but like, I don't blame people mm-hmm. for wanting to leave a place where they feel like they're stuck yeah. to go a place where they have, where they could have an individual opportunity. Yeah. Okay? So like if some, if like a Mexican immigrant came to me and said, is Nick, is, is America a land of individualism? I would say absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, they're like, and if they said, is that good? Mm. I would say it used to be. Mm. Okay. Now, I don't think individualism is a universal good. There's right. a way of being individualistic where we don't even care about our neighbors, mm-hmm. where that, that, that isn't good. And we right. undermine the proper meaning of social justice, which is the right duty we do owe to other mm. human beings. Yeah. Right. Yep. Which has gotten really confused in our political debates. Mm-hmm. What do you really owe your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? On what level? In what way? What do you owe them? What don't you owe them? Mm-hmm. That whole conversation has gotten really confused. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, but I can't solve that right now. I have, I have referred to it in other podcasts. Mm-hmm. Right. But in this case, what happened is that individualism got morphed into the thing that demonstrates the way you live out that individuality is by expressing yourself. Okay. Not by achievement. Sure. Yeah. So, right. So it's not like you're going to ride <laughs> west to like right. Western Kansas and you're going to pick 20 acres for yourself with nothing on it. Mm-hmm. And you are going to build a house on that thing mm-hmm. and you're going to get buried there and you're going to be an individual. That's not what we mean. Right. <laughs> what we mean now is like, hey, look at this picture I took of my food. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Now, obviously, that's a little, I mean, obviously, I'm caricaturing it some. But the idea yeah. that like what we have to do is express ourselves. Mm-hmm. That expressivism is kind of like, so some of the, the like mantras are like you be you be true to yourself, Mm -hmm. um, follow your heart, find yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And the assumption is find yourself inside yourself. Right. right? Those are the kind of ideas that are like kind of wrapped up in expressive individualism. Okay. So that like, so when, so it's because of that, we need, we feel like we need to be expressively free. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we become very anti-institutional. We don't like yeah. think covenants like marriage. Yeah. <laughs> we want to be able to go in and out of relationships. Mm-hmm. It, but in that, what that ends up leading to is non-love based relationships. Yeah. Because we don't have commitments that are non-political and non-economic. Right. When I hear those different 
mantras, the UBU, be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like though there are there are kernels of truth in those statements, but there's no constraints on them. Like what it means, like be true to yourself as we understand what our identity should be in Christ as it's defined in his word. Or like UBU, like there are confines that as Christians we are supposed to have around us. And and yet the expressive individualism, it sounds like we were saying, has taken the constraints off and that we can just decide for ourselves. what. And maybe this is how this ties into the moralistic therapeutic deism. Like, Mm -hmm. well, so how do those two things tie together then? So if one of the, so the, the actual pursuit of life. So if you look at the, the doctrines of moralistic therapeutic deism and you ask, okay, what am I doing each day in this philosophy? The answer is while being good, nice and fair to others, Mm -hmm. you are the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Right Mm -hmm. now that dovetails really beautifully with expressive Mm -hmm. individuals. Now, I don't want to say that expressive individuals, expressive individualism came from moralistic therapeuticism. It did not. Right. Moralistic therapeutic deism is a means by which Christians easily move from mm-hmm. Christian faith to moralistic therapeutic deism to expressive individualism fully. Okay. Now, every Christian in America, I would argue, is infected by expressive individualism to some extent mm-hmm. and probably moralistic therapeutic deism to mm-hmm. some extent, right? But there's lots of people in America who aren't Christians who have come to expressive individualism without going through the church and without going through moralistic right. therapeutic deism. They're not moralistic. They're just expressive individualists. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Taylor, who was a Catholic philosopher who wrote about secularism a good bit, um, said a little bit about how um, how romanticism led to this. But there's a there's a point at which people began to believe that freedom, being a free and being having being a person of honesty and integrity, which was mm-hmm. really important, mm-hmm. had to do with authenticity, whether or not I was being me. Yeah. So like the way I, as a Christian, the way I understand integrity and honesty is in, integrity comes from integer to be one mm. thing, to be like, I'm, I'm the same person all the time. Yeah. So if I tell the truth, I always tell the truth. If I'm kind, I'm always kind. Mm-hmm. Like I try to be the exact same person I am on stage everywhere else in my life. Right. Um, now I'm a little bit more boisterous on stage and a little bit more calm, not on stage. I'm a little bit more, I can focus a little bit more on individual people when I'm not on stage, mm-hmm. but I am the same person. Mm-hmm. I don't believe different things. I never say, oh, I said that on stage because people love to hear that. Mm, right. That I would never do that because that would right. be a breach of integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like honesty is fundamental to who I am. Like my dad was a classic um was a classic romantic expressivist. Like he believed that like being an, an integ- having a person, being a person of integrity and honesty was fundamental to being a real person that didn't have to do with his own personal authenticity. Mm-hmm. Like not in the romantic way we mean it now. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. So what happened is, is that older version of um, being who you are or being the right kind of person and taking joy. Like, like for example, Henry David Thoreau would be this kind of person mm. or Theodore Roosevelt would be like, you know, I'm like this, I'm this like, I'm a certain kind of person. I'm going to be that person. Yeah. And that's, that's what it means to have integrity. That's mm-hmm. what it means to be a great person. That in those cases, people were, that was aspirational. Do you see? Mm-hmm. Like that's really important to the distinction. Christianity is aspirational. I want to be like Christ. I'm not like mm-hmm. Jesus Christ mm-hmm. right now. I bear his image. I'm loved and valued, but I'm not like him. I want to be more like him. Yeah. It's aspirational. Same thing with like even like being a rough rider or like living um, the life of like hunting and camping in the West that Theodore Roosevelt like glorified. Mm-hmm. That was aspirational. I want to move towards that. I want to be that strong person. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas um, more, whereas expressive individualism is not like that. Mm-hmm. The authenticity it seeks is to look inside of yourself what you already really already are. Mm-hmm. And you just let that out with authenticity and honesty. This yeah. is what I am. Yeah. Right. So like, like for example, if you don't feel like you're a heterosexual person, mm-hmm. like, like maybe you're, maybe you can go both ways. Well then you're bi and you should tell everybody you're bi. You need to come out. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you have doubts about Christianity, you should come out as somebody who's deconstructed their faith. Like you don't believe. Right. You don't fight those doubts. Right. You you go, you go, this is what I am. Mm-hmm. I'm a doubter. Right. Yeah. And, and like, obviously psychologically labeling yourself based on, in that kind of way can be extraordinarily detrimental mm-hmm. to development. Right. But, but more than that, it's just, it's a completely different philosophy about how we should live and what mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so we stop thinking, Oh, I'm the kind of creature that needs to be formed into a goal that's outside of me that I'm pursuing. Mm-hmm. And I say, no, I'm already 
the, the best version of me is just inside of me. Yeah. If I could recognize it and let it out. And so therefore the way I need to change in the kind of person I want to become is to look at the parts of me that are not being honest with me They're, and that aren't embracing who I am. The parts of me that say no to me, I have to get rid of. The mm. problem is, is that for most of human history, for virtually all of human history, humans recognize that the part of parts of you that said no to you were the most important parts. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The part of you that said, no, you can't bash your neighbor's head in, mm-hmm. no matter how authentically you want to do it. <laughs> right. yeah. Like that was the part that you'd be like, oh, that's called my conscience. I, that, that's the part that gets to hold the steering wheel. Yeah. Yep. And so um, and let me let me read you this. This is a quote yeah. um, from Charles Taylor. He says, he, and he's talking about this transformation um, that it, instead of authenticity, meaning having integrity and honesty, authenticity meant not be, not living in conformity. Mm-hmm. I think that, so let me say that again, because that, that's the critical distinction. Yeah. When when Charles Taylor talked about authenticity in, the, in American history, it meant I'm authentic in that I have integrity and honesty. Mm-hmm. I'm an authentic person. I'm real. Mm-hmm. The term has come to mean authenticity. Authenticity means con, not conforming, mm-hmm. not living in conformity. I'm different yeah. from everybody else. Does that make sense? Yes. The extreme version of that is sexual identity stuff we're seeing with, especially with younger people mm-hmm. that like there's man and woman's just a construct, right? All these things are constructs. You don't have to conform to them. You can literally make up your own gender, your own sub gender ideology. You can be a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset. And that may be too specific because you're still conforming to some idea mm-hmm. and you don't have to conform to any abstraction. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course that assumes that there isn't nature. Right. Right. That you like, you are something. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this is what, this is what Taylor says. I mean, the understanding of life, which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. So the, the problem is, is that, is this, is that like, that's half right. Romantic mm-hmm. expressivism was working against conformity ideologies in British culture in particular mm-hmm. that like, you know, don't show your ankles and this is how everybody behaves and you need to try to get an advantageous marriage and here's all the moral things that you have to do. And he, the, here's all the customs that we create yeah. and the, you know, the, here's where the fork goes and mm-hmm. like, and, and what, what it produces is an extremely rigid society mm-hmm. because everybody was playing a game and there was no room for failure. And so people played it like really strictly and they conformed really tightly. And if yeah. you didn't do that, you got judged and ostracized and you lost social capital. And that game was so much fun that we still write period pieces about it because you can like have people just talking in a parlor and have enough drama mm-hmm. to draw people in. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, is it like the story, Emma, like oh, almost nothing of consequence happens in the entire book. <laughs> It's just people talking to each other mm-hmm. about talking to each other in things. And, but there's, it's this, in society so restrictively like regimented that like one false move at a picnic can like ruin relationships yeah. and like yeah. destroy people's standing and make it so they can never have a good marriage mm-hmm. and so on. Does that make sense? Yep. So um, on one level, expre- romantic expressivism was like, we don't have to live by all this crap. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which on some level you're like, well, good for you. Yeah. Like, right. I mean, like that's true. Mm-hmm. Like, like I've, there are people who have come to high point church from extremely fundamentalist churches, which mm-hmm. are like, listen, this is how you have to dress. You have to have a skirt that is this long. Like I, I was sent something by a woman where there were instructions in her church about how to yawn if you were a woman. Because, wow. because when a woman yawns, she'll often put her shoulders back, which pushes her chest forward. Oh which makes evident her bosom. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> and so like they were like, look, you can't yawn like that. You can't like stretch your arms back and let your shoulders go back because it's going to push your bosom forward. And of course, guys are going to see that and they're going to be looking at your chest, right? Oh and God. that's not a nice thing to do to guys. You shouldn't be like awakening that sense of sexuality in them. So this is how you should yawn. Wow. Now listen, on one level, I my eye has been drawn to yawning women before. Like, sure. like that's a real thing. Sure. I don't think women can take responsibility for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And I do not. I do not, it does not bother me if a woman's like, screw you. <laughs> like, right. I'm not going to yawn the way you tell me. Yeah. Right. And so the question is, how much of that do we do? Mm-hmm. How much of this romantic expressivism where we say, I'm going to be me, do we do? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, you study the scriptures really carefully mm-hmm. to understand what is nature, what is in our nature, how the flesh functions so that you can discern wisely 
how where the areas of freedom are and where the areas of constraint are mm-hmm. so that you can live a life of love yeah does that make sense yeah and that that's harder work mm-hmm. and people would rather um express themselves they would just look inside themselves just be whatever they are mm-hmm. just let the inside come out and to say that when they're doing that what they're doing is recognizing that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about mm-hmm. oneself mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah and that is so easy so simple and now if i can take the ultimate expression of selfishness and I can imbue it with the moral authority of authenticity. Mm-hmm. I cannot be touched. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads to the last question that I have for you is like, yeah. why is this, why is it important? Why did you feel like we needed to talk about this on the podcast? Because like, what is going to be the result? Because it is so reckon- seductive mm-hmm. it is a philosophy that tells you essentially that you're a good person. All you have to do is be like, vaguely nice kind of good to other people and you should really be you you be you um authenticity like people the fallacy of equivocation is one of the most dangerous right fallacy of equivocation when you use a word to mean two different things mm-hmm. right so like like when, when people say we're gonna we're all gonna wear masks because that's what the science says well science can mean at least three things <laughs> you mm-hmm. know right it can mean what this with the general consensus of the scientific establishment mm-hmm. or it could mean the result of the scientific method in a particular question or it could mean you know it can mean a, a bunch of different things right yeah and when they say the science says, they want you to think the result of the scientific process. What they mean is the consensus of the scientific establishment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because that the that would one's an appeal to authority, and the other is appeal to process. Right. We trust the process; we tend to not trust authority. Mm-hmm. So they want to cram the two together. Yeah, right? and yeah. that's normal. People do that kind of thing all the time when they communicate. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. And so what's happening here is the word authenticity. There's there's an equivocation in authenticity mm. instead of ha- that meaning integrity and honesty. Yeah, in, in an aspirational way towards what nature dictates we must become on the basis of moral and revealed truths. Mm-hmm. So that as a spiritual person under a submission to an almighty and holy God who has condemned us in our expressive individualism yeah. and told us that our unconform- we haven't conformed to righteousness is mm-hmm. the problem and that we need to be much more conforming to righteousness yeah. and less conforming to the ways of the world. Mm-hmm. The, the, the thing is, is that what, Christ, what God is saying is he's, he's saying, listen, in some ways you have a good category. Don't conform to one thing and conform to something else. The question is what? Mm-hmm. what do you not conform to and what do you conform yeah. to? And the answer is in scripture, don't conform to the world, to the flesh and to the devil mm-hmm. and therefore be a slave to sin, but be freed in faith in Christ. Repent and believe, trust him with all your heart. Keep in step with the new law of the spirit that dictates the law of love and conform yourself to the beauty of Christ mm-hmm. mediated in a lot of particularities and choices that are free for you to choose. Right. Through your own personality, your time in your life, mm-hmm. but still pursuing the ethic, the attitude, the person and the character, the integrity and honesty of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. And that birthright of jewels and treasure is being sold for a lentil stew mm-hmm. of selfish, self-expressive stupidity that makes us selfish, that harms people in our relationships, that can't make commitments, and that can't even... One of the things that's so di- so difficult about this is it makes it so that um, our mindsets are such that we can't... The th- truths of God can't even occur to us, mm-hmm. right? Like the demonic nature of this is, is that our minds function in such a fleshly and worldly way that it's not just we hear the truth of the gospel and we reject it. The truths of the gospel don't even occur to us. We don't even have the mental framework to even think straight enough to take scripture, Christian truth seriously. And so what happens is a young person, let's say, or just a person in our culture who is steeped in expressive individualism, and I say the gospel to them, it, it does, it's not just like a claim that may or may not be true that they should grapple with. It feels like I'm speaking in like hieroglyphics mm. or like I'm speaking Malayalam to yeah. them. And they're like, I don't even know. This doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah. I don't have the categories by which to even understand whether it signifies anything meaningful Mm -hmm. because they're like, I can't even, I can't even grapple with this. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're like, well, you better try, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And part of it is it also, it also makes us incredibly mentally lazy Hmm. too. So we're being selfish and being emotionally wicked, Mm -hmm. but we're also becoming increasingly mentally lazy. Yeah. So when I say, Hey, you need to think more clearly about this. You're kind of like your, your mind goes, literally your brain, your neurology goes, we're not doing that. We don't expend energy in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was watching oh. something recently. There, there's a I forget her name. She's a she just had a like New York Times bestseller. She's 
she's a North Korean woman who like got out of North Korea by being sex trafficked. Oh wow! She has a really interesting story, but she was doing an interview with a with like a talk show person, and she said the interesting thing about coming out of North Korea was we were we were just told what to believe every minute. Mm -hmm. The leader is this. The leader says that. The dear leader does this. The leader right. And she said when I got out of North Korea and I encountered people who who thought. She said it was it was it was it was like I had entered another planet. Hmm. And she said I would I would go and I would talk to somebody and they would say something that would require me to think for myself, like yeah. to have my own thought. And she said my brain would just shut down. She said there were times where I would like I would like force myself to think for like five minutes. And then she said and then I would like I would like fall asleep for like I six say, hours. Like, take a nap. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Because like just mentally she just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And people really underestimate how your your brain neurologically is like your physical body in terms of your mm. musculature and how in yeah. shape you are. Yeah. And so if you believe in ideas and ideologies in areas that like teach you not to think, you might have been born with like an 130 IQ and you may be operating spiritually at an 80 IQ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't even know it. You have no idea it's happened. Right. Your neurology has actually betrayed you. Mm-hmm. Like you've betrayed yourself and your neur- neurology kind of like said, okay, that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And now these thoughts come in and you just, you like, you can't even consider them, right? Yeah. Which makes me wonder about like biblical concepts of damnation, like how that happens. Yeah. And, and it kind of makes sense. The yeah. more we know about the human brain, the more I'm like, oh, this idea of like, you can damn yourself. Like mm-hmm. you can, like when, when Paul says, you know, you can t- preach the gospel to people, but they, their consciences have been seared like with a hot iron. They've been like cauterized. They can't function anymore. Mm-hmm. I can see like neurologically we now understand like how that can happen. Like if you make enough choices to be evil and not care about the good mm-hmm. and you create new neurological pathways in your mind that that's what you are, that's who you are, that's yeah. what you do, that's what you believe. Yeah. You become less and less capable of considering the opportunity that you should repent and believe. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. it's like somebody has burned your conscience with a hot iron. You just can't change. Yeah. And my concern is, is like we're doing this to kids younger and younger. We're yeah. teaching this, them this philosophy incredibly early. We are teaching it to them in the most radical ways. Like, your gender and sexuality. Yeah. Like I can't, I, I can't think the only way that could be more radical is if you told kids that they could identify as animals. Like mm-hmm. the, the only step beyond sexuality is humanity. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you start to teach people, they don't have to be human. They can yeah. be whatever, they could be whatever kind of creature they want. That was the only thing I could think of more radical than that. Yeah. And so as we do this to kids, it, like they're they're I mean, last time I think I read um, kids between like 13 and 17 in California, something like 35% of them identified as non-binary in some way wow. or another. Yeah. which is absolutely what the LGBT movement said would never happen and couldn't ever hmm. happen when I was in college, right? They were like, no, this is completely unborn. There's no fluidity wow. to it at all. Mm-hmm. And so if you're gay, you're just gay, mm-hmm. right? And so you, so if we teach this kind of radical ideology to people, it's not going to move anybody. It's just going to bring out what's already there. Yeah. So if 3% of the population is gay, we'll just get all three of that pop- percent of the population to come out. Mm-hmm. It's not going to expand it to 12%. Mm-hmm. What we're finding is, is that's not really true. Hmm. What we're finding is, is that you, there is fluidity in human understanding, which can affect our neurology in profound ways and our self understanding in profound ways. Yeah. And, um, it can at least confuse the heck out of us. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And we have no idea what that will do to people. Yeah. And so, um, I just think that I, I wish like I could just take a hammer to the skull of expressive individuals and beat it to death, but I can't because it's in the skulls of all my neighbors. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So final and question then. Is, is like invite them out of it and just say, look, can I clarify to you what you're doing? This yeah. is what you're believing. This is what you're doing. Yeah. And so my, my goal is, is like all of you who are listening to the sound of my voice, like, yes. repent of expressive individuals, mm. like identify in your heart and soul mm. and mind, look for it in all of the processes of your thought. Yeah. Imagine that you are entrapped by it mm. and you have been completely unaware and you think you're believing in Christianity, but you're really believing in some strange mixture of moralistic therapeutic deism and expressive individualism. Yeah. And Jesus can never play that. Mm. It is, it is demonic in the sense that demons believe this and want you to believe it, mm-hmm. that the flesh, the worst part of you believes this and wants you to believe it. And the world, the worst of human culture and creation believes this and wants you to believe it. And it will enslave you and it will ultimately destroy you. And you must leave it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, in different words, that's what the whole first two chapters of my book, Substance, are about. Oh, yeah. Seeing worldliness, understanding what it is, how it's operating you, and decisively saying goodbye. Yeah. And if you won't do that, you can never grow in sanctification. You can't really follow Jesus. Yeah. Because you're saying, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus is going west and you're going to go east. Yeah. And you're like, look, I'm committed to going east and following you. 
Yeah. And Jesus is like, I'm going west. <laughs> so either you have to leave your desire to go east and follow me west, or you can't follow me. Mm-hmm. You can't set this parameter and then say you want to follow me and then expect me to go east so that you can follow me. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to do that. Yeah. But so many American Christians are like, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And so you have to repent of going west and go east mm-hmm. so I can follow you because I'm going east. Yeah. And Jesus is like, this is why Jesus has to be master, not mascot. He has to be the indisputed king, lord, and master of your life. Mm-hmm. And you have to see yourself as the doulos of Christ, the slave of yeah. Christ. Because it's the only way you can be freed from your slavery. Hmm. And yeah. if, if people do that, then, and, and this is why, again, I say this over and over again. This is why in Christian faith, everything come down, comes down to faith, hmm. belief, repentance and re-choosing and choosing your direction and deciding what to trust and who to trust. Yeah. Because once you see all the quagmire of, of these false faiths and these like confusing ideas and so on, believing Jesus is the key to liberation mm-hmm. and formation and development. Let me see just one last thing relative to expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. One of the things expressive individualism will always do is draw you away from the structures that can form you as a human being to something aspirational, to become something. Mm. So for example, the church is a institution that exists to form you into something. Just like 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 marine basic training is going to you know take out of shape, undisciplined people who are not ready for war and make them disciplined yeah. and shape people ready for war. Right? Nobody thinks, "Well, I'm going to go into the, to the Marines and then I'm going to tweet all kinds of crazy stuff <laughs> because I'm a Marine, people are going to listen to me," right? The Marines are not a stage on which you perform. They are a thing you submit yourself to and it forms you, Mm -hmm. right? And we don't treat the church like that. The church is not like, hey, it's the cool place where you get to go and get what you want. No, the church in one one sense shouldn't care about what you want. And it doesn't because it cares about you. Because it cares about you, it shouldn't care about what you want. You come to the church and it is the institution that forms you. You become a Christian Mm -hmm. there. Mm Mm-hmm. And it only happens when they stop caring about what you want. And so if you want to be a Christian and you want to be part of High Point Church, for example, you want to be a meaning, a good part of High Point Church, encourage us to not care about what you want. Encourage the pastoral staff to not care about what you want. Stop caring about what you want. This is not, this, this place isn't here to do that. Same mm. thing is true of marriage, the family, mm. parents, yeah. friendship, covenantal friendship, all these kinds of like fundamental human institutions. They shouldn't care about what you want. They are a place where you become a kind of person by being confronted, tried, stressed, mm. hurt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And this process. Where you process, find your honesty and integrity and you find your real authenticity. Yeah. And this process does not happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can listen to this podcast and then step away for a few hours and be like, okay, I got it. I, I know mm-hmm. where it is. I'm believing these things no. um, in this, each of these, these institutions. This, these philosophies reside in your emotions. There was a book out not too long ago called Fast Fast and Slow Thinking, I think it was called. And it was about the fact that our our mental processes have a fast thinking and Mm -hmm. a slow thinking, right? So there's there's your deliberative mind where you like think something through slowly and you try to figure out what you believe. Mm -hmm. But there's also fast thinking where you already have a lot of conclusions and Mm -hmm. it feels like your emotions are making decisions for you, but you're you're making these immediate decisions because your your brain just goes, we already know that. We already know the answer Mm -hmm. to this. Mm It, it saves your life because if you had to think through everything with your deliberative mind, your brain would take up like 85% of your physical energy and you would end up dying, mm-hmm. right? The problem is, is that once your mind thinks it knows something, it, de- it deliberates through your quick thinking based on what you already think. Mm. It takes a while to undo that. Yeah. You have to be like, wait, I don't think that, mm. right? Yeah. And um, sometimes there, I know people who like they, there is fast thinking that they hate that is in their head that is, has been with like racism is like this, right? Mm. Like you have some experiences, you're like black people are bad. Now, every time you see a black person, you're de- it's not like your deliberative mind goes, oh, I think black people are inferior or mm-hmm. I think black people are dangerous. What happens for like a white person, let's say, or it'd be vice versa for a black person, is to say like your fast thinking, like these childhood experiences that like packed in what you quote think you know, right, goes, uh, we should be careful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, just, it just says that and you go, right. And then you, what has to happen now if you want to be like quote anti-racist, your deliberative mind has to be like, whoa there, tiger, mm-hmm. stop that thought. Yeah. Let's go back. That's not what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and that's the best you can do, not because you're you want to be quote racist, but because that's just how the mind works, mm-hmm. right? And it can't work otherwise. Yeah. But what has to happen for us is our fast thinking is expressive individualism, and then I get up and I preach the gospel, and you go, oh yeah, I like that, and expressive individualism goes like, yeah, we can do some of that. Yeah, there's some of that we like, mm-hmm. you know, because it mm-hmm. feels meaningful. 
So there's some of that we like. Yeah. But this other stuff, eh. Yeah. And it does your thinking for you. Yeah. I just have to stop at some point. <sighs> but I, I, I really believe, Aaron, and those listening, I really believe that like th- you ha- you you cannot have like sort of the demon of your slavery exercised if it's deeper than where you're willing to go. And if you won't go deep enough in terms of like the structures of your thought and your belief to really be healed, to really be changed, to be freed, mm-hmm. f- then you are, you're believing, you are the one holding on to the idea, ideology that's enslaving you. Yeah. And um, it is, it's sad and horrible and painful and could be, could be ultimately destroying and damning. And mm-hmm. I just believe that. I wish it could all be positive. I believe in Jesus. I follow Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And it, but it's not. You yeah. have to. Christianity is always negative and positive. You have to repent negative and believe positive. Mm-hmm. You have to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And that's also true in sanctification. You have to kill the flesh right. and participate in the life of Jesus. Yeah. And so if anyone who's not willing to kill the flesh will never really participate in the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. This it's a sobering and challenging message and lots of stuff to be thinking about, but like you said, necessary so that we are becoming what we should and not damning ourselves. <laughs> so, yeah. Good. And if it, if you and if you do, right? The scriptures say the power of the Holy Spirit is with you. Mm-hmm. Whenever you believe in the real Christ, there is supernatural power with you. God will, says in Second Peter, you will participate in the fine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. This is you don't. This is not another form of Pelagianism, where you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mm-hmm. and you try to save yourself. Um, it is you graciously participate in the Spirit drawing you out of your wretchedness to the what he calls the the law of the Spirit of life. It's a good word. Thanks, Nick. a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.